everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, a podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, game masters, enthusiasts, and guest hosts today, because we actually have uh, with us our very first guest. We're 50 episodes in, finally booked our first guest. Today's podcast will feature all things canonical and chronological, because we're going to talk to Kyle, who, along with Josh, uh, did most of the main heavy lifting on uh, Empty Thrones, which is a book we're going to plug here for a minute or so. So with me, of course, is Josh. Say hi, Josh. Hello, everybody. And Kyle. Hello, everybody. There you go. So uh, we didn't get any questions ahead of time for this podcast. So I luckily prepared in advance. My The listeners failed us. They didn't want to ask Kyle anything at all. So I'm going to do all the, all the talking to everybody else on that behalf. So I have a bunch of things to get to. So other than that, if you have any questions for us later on, feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Not everyone gets to be a guest. Kyle is the first. Hopefully not the last. We'll try and do one every 50 episodes or so. I feel very honored. Thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. It was Josh's insistence. I didn't say no, <laughs> but he insisted anyway. I didn't say yes. I'm just kidding. Absolutely fine having it. So before we get into things, yeah, before we get into things, I do want to say we are going to try and avoid specific spoilers, but obviously we're talking about a product that is going to be covering timeline advancements and and events that take place in bar save in terms of our development. And so there are things in here that are going to be talked about that could conceivably be spoilers. So just keep that in mind. Again, we're, we're not going to get into specifics for reasons that will probably come up in our conversation with Kyle here, but I can't spoil just it be aware. It's, it's already out on PDF. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but there are some things where the game masters will want this, but they yes. maybe not want their players to read it or, you know, to kind of know what's going on as they kind of prepare it for their, for their own campaigns and their own sessions. Well, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. I only read the first two of the five sections and then I read the game stuff at the end. So I really did not even read through the last three adventure plots, uh, really. So I'm specifically not keyed into those for any questions I may ask. So I'm just going to go with the overall generalities. So Kyle, I'm going to walk you through a couple of my thoughts here real quick. Uh, there are five arcs in this that cover plays, things happening in Iopos, Jerus, Landis, Freewater, Kratos, a new town called Daish, and I think even in uh, a dragon's lair. Did I I think you anything? reversed to uh, Daichi is uh, Kratos's port. Mm -hmm. That's not new, but Freewater is new, and that's in Landis or nearby. Gotcha. Fair enough. And this is mostly written for characters, you know, half a dozen characters or so, four to five, six, of at least Fifth Circle. And I did read this in the epic. If you run this as an epic campaign from beginning to end-ish, you might finish Ninth Circle by the time you're all the way done. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of kind of loose adventure frameworks because um, four topics that you've discussed on earlier episodes once you hit fifth circle, you kind of get a lot of opportunities to branch out, and then maybe you don't circle up as fast as another table. So if it's your goal to circle up quickly, I think you'd pretty easily hit ninth circle just with all the content in here. But if you want to pick up all the paths and all the disciplines, who knows, right? Oh, fair enough. Um, I just looked at it and said, oh, that's tempting because I'm playing a character in fourth edition, not running anything. And so I sent the, just that one paragraph off to my game master and said, oh, please, please, <laughs> please, please. I haven't read them all. Just run this whole thing. I want to, I want to do all this stuff that's in here. Nice. So the calendar, it starts off with, um, we start in the month of Mawag, which is basically May. 
And this runs almost a whole year. It's like 11 months of game time that could encompass what the characters are actually doing. So that seems like an awfully long time to get this done. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on <laughs> with four, five major sort of plot arcs in the book, each of which is suitable to be a campaign on its own with multiple Agreed. adventure frameworks in it and a storyline there, and that they are in different places on the map. You know, you've got Iopos up in one corner, you've got Freewater, which is on the Carafod Landis border down in another corner, and you've got Daichi, which is kind of in the middle up of the map, um, and then and that, all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of travel that would be involved. And while that calendar, that timeline that's in the book is sort of a, a rough guideline, similar to how there was a timeline if people go back and look at Bar Save at War, for example, or Prelude to War, the, the first epic, really, that that had a yeah. timeline of events that was sort of laid out there. But that is largely how for our future development, we will kind of look at how things go forward. But for your mm -hmm. own home campaign, your own table, you are not required in any way to hold to that timeline of events in terms of how things go out. Oh, no, I just figured it was nice to actually put a month to the start of these events happening and kind of an end month as well. So it would take like 11 months to run the whole thing. And they do overlap. I mean, uh, the five, this is not going to give me spoilers the way uh, they're called the five arcs. Public execution is the first arc takes about two months to complete in game time. Uh, yeah. And then long live the King takes about four months to run from the timeline that I, I uh, cobbled together. Riotous bloom takes about seven pirates and thieves takes about five and draconian solution takes about seven as well. So they can, they can overlap. They actually, I think are written in order to purposefully overlap to cause one to kind of domino effect to the next. Uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely correct. The middle three have a lot of overlapping and a lot of different ways to hop from one plot to the next. The intro and the conclusion are kind of more solid beats, but the middle three very much are a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. My follow-up question to this. Okay, we gave everybody kind of the framework of how this is going to work. There's five overall arcs, takes about a year to play. Got to start off at so-and-so levels. So that's usually what people look for is, can I play this now? Can I play this later? What, you know, what do I have to be ready for when I, when I get into this thing? So, Oh, and Josh, that's a year Kyle? of, of in-game time. Oh, it's yes. It's certainly possible that that could take you... <laughs> A couple of years, depending on how frequently your group plays, it could take you even longer in real time to work through all of that material, especially if the GM takes the prelude and aftermath hooks and develops those into adventures as well. Because in addition yes. to where each arc has several kind of broadly sketched out frameworks for the main events, there are side ideas and other hooks and whatnot that just give a lot of material for game masters to take and make their own. It is a lot less structured compared to the other stuff that Kyle has done a lot of work on, which is mm -hmm. the Legends of Barsay books, which are a much more structured adventure. Do you want to talk at all, Kyle, about the, the differences in approaching Empty Thrones compared to the, to the adventure work that you had done on uh, the, the legends. Series. Sure. Uh, I actually started my writing work in general, not only with FASA, my writing, my first writing, uh, written products were the, uh, legends of bar save adventures, which I wrote with, uh, Michael Allegro and Carl Ribaltowski. And, um, those adventures were originally designed to be for convention play, but we also wanted to create adventures that were really easy for 
new people new to Earth Dawn to really begin their you know experience with it. If they'd never played a previous edition, they could jump in, see how an adventure was put together, and run with it. Part of the restrictions for designing it for convention play was we had to make sure we were very specific as to how to get a whole story into only a certain number of hours. Adding on to the fact that it was for lower circle play to make it easier and more approachable, we felt like we had to really make sure that it was difficult to make like a huge mistake while you were running it. We take off a lot of those sort of training wheels in Empty Thrones uh, because you are a higher circle. And we just wanted to say, like, these are the, the story beats that are going to happen. Here's uh, a list of conflicts that you can run into. But if these aren't really appropriate for your group, maybe you want to do something else. Here's a bunch of other ideas that you can use and kind of jump all over the place. So I think they're two very different products. Yeah, this feels more like a, a large grab bag. Because I think about every four or five sentences, something could tip somebody off to say, I should start my plot line here. This is where I can add dialogue if I'm if I'm taking this lump sum of game product and I'm gonna go make bread out of it. Here's here's the here's the starter I take, add some flour, add some water, which is my dialogue, my characters, my NPCs, throw it all in, and this is where you can branch off. And I think about every four or five sentences in this text of Empty Thrones does that. And so it's very, I can't say densely written, but there's a lot of information in these 200 and 300 pages or so. And it's, it's a lot to, t- uh, in a good way, it's a lot to take in. That's not like it's overwhelming. It's just one of those, oh, where do I start? Where do I, you know, I want to make sure I get that note. I want to get that note. I want to get that note. And it's a lot to take in. So let's talk about how this whole thing started. Whose idea was it? Ooh, that's a complicated question. What do you think, Josh? Josh? Kyle? well the idea the initial concept for empty thrones came about from some early conversations if i'm recalling correctly and kyle can certainly feel free to correct me if i misremember any details but it came about i think as some as some early conversations between myself and andy watson our project manager and sort of den mother to the (laughs) bird of cats that we are on the development team (laughs) love you andy (laughs) about and this was prompted a little bit by team meetings and some things that had been brought forward by ross in terms of what is our sort of next big thing you know what are we planning on and it was we had like fourth edition the the rule books were basically out at that point we had trevar and elven nations which kyle worked on and some other stuff was kind of out and we were looking at well okay after this initial Kickstarter promise of books from the initial Kickstarter, what's coming down the line, the Iopos book seemed a no brainer because it was the stronghold of the bad guys that were kind of laid out in fourth edition. And then after all of these other books, quest doors and all of that had been done, it was like, okay, well now we've tackled rule books. We've tackled setting books. What's the next thing that we can sort of look to as a project. And that is advancing the story of bar save. Right? That's one of the things that in first edition, I think captured so many imaginations is that as the source books were released and as you know, time progressed in them working on the game, the timeline progressed in the setting and there were changes that happened in much the same way that happened with Battletech and Shadowrun, other really iconic old FASA properties known for that. And it was basically, well, Prelude to War kicked off with this kind of uh, situation upending event that is the the sort of 
one-two punch of the arrival of the triumph, you know, on the shore of Lake Ban and the assassination of King Varulus III. Those things happening right on the heels of each other basically propelled everything that happened for the most part in Prelude to War. And it was, well, okay, let's look at a setting, you know, a, a supplement that's going to do that. And what can we do that is going to have a similar kind of effect? And it was kind of looking at each other and, and going, what if we kill Ool? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the development of, of comic books in the 90s. Let's kill Superman. Why? I haven't done it yet. Yeah, that, that it was kind of like, well, this is something that we're working, we're going to have an IOPO source book. It's going to be describing a lot of that. And if we're looking at the next step of that, the, the end game of that kind of whole stage of product development was to kill Ool in this kind of, well, then we can use the IOPO source book as a place to really start to lay those hints and initial conflicts and whatnot that one could be used by people for their own games, but also that would then feed into the secondary product that if you look at the covers for Iopos and Empty Thrones, you will notice that aside from the presence of Ool on the throne, the covers are identical. And that was intentionally commissioned that way and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so once we had that initial concept, that was where we kind of went to the team and said, okay, who's going to be running lead on this project. And I think that's where you came in at that point. Yeah. I think we were on one of our meetings and um, I don't remember if it was Andy or you, but it was like, you said, we want to write this book where Ool dies. Who wants to do it? And I was like, well, well, what does that mean? Like a lot of, a lot of things are going to have to change if Ool dies. And you said, you know, figure it out and then we'll get a book together. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, so how many of I, so how many of your ideas did Josh shoot down? Uh, oh well, the team in general uh, had to shoot down a fair few ideas. But I, what I tried to do was um, from first edition and the time skip. There's a lot of question marks as to where certain pieces have ended up. So I tried to sort of make a big list of like 24 cool things that might happen and my reasoning behind it. And then we sort of had to talk about each one, and some of them I was way off base on. But uh, the cream of the crop we picked and fleshed out. And while they're very different from when they were originally designed, uh, I think they all logically flow through each other now. Fair. So, Josh, how many of those leftover ideas are going to be coming up in other books? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the – so one of the – actually, I, I don't know whether it will, but one of the ideas that was originally floated in the early stages of development of Empty Thrones – which ended up getting discarded because the, the changes that were made, this was, this is the long live the king, free water, Carafod Landis arc. Kyle is, yeah. is nodding in the camera. I can see he knows I what do. I'm talking about. <laughs> the initial hook for that, and, and this was one of the ideas that Kyle initially brought up, and one that I had in the advancement of the timeline had, had it left vague on purpose just for this sort of thing was, what if the hook for what's going on down there is rumors that Nedin did not in fact die in the climactic battle at Sky Point when the flagship went down and that he, like everybody thought he was dead and he decided that that was fine and continued to do his thing and that that was actually the initial hook to get people down into that part of the, of the province. Map. 
And yeah. that whole Nedin subplot basically ended up getting excised entirely because it drew too much focus away from what ended up happening with the development of free water and the whole situation there. And so it was an idea that was going to be explored and then got dropped. So it is still an open question. <laughs> I like it that way. It should be left that way. Let other game masters play with it as they want to. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I remember from stuff that Lou had talked about in, in some of the, the first edition development days and some of the stuff he's talked about there is when you leave plot hook dangling like that, or when you leave some kind of open question, you don't necessarily need to have the answer right away. And that so that that gives you room to maybe attach stuff to later on. Yeah, so I definitely thought it would be interesting to delve into Throlic politics and how they would respond to him returning. But that ended up just Throlic politics is complicated. So would have taken just too much <laughs> attention away from the, from the main thrust of everything that's supposed to be going on. It, it would have kind of felt like uh, running your own poli-sci class in a fantasy setting, right? <laughs> yeah. Fair. So I'm just going to throw some odd, I'm going to throw odd questions at you right now, just to shake it up a little bit. How many NPCs did you end up creating? Ooh, we made a list of important NPCs. <laughs> I think it's 47, but then there are many Ooh. others that were not classified as important just because I didn't have more than a sentence uh, or two to say about them. So they exist and have some gotcha. statistics, but um, <laughs> so I don't know, 55, 60? <laughs> That's fine. I just wanted to give everybody out there who doesn't have the book yet. There's a lot of information in here to go mining for. And many of them were created by the freelancers that we hired to do some work on this as well. Kyle was sort of the, the creative lead and, and project manager and worked with a couple of freelancers who helped sketch out the um, or flesh out the details of the three of mm -hmm. the locations that were created. To save him some. <laughs> yeah, that, that fair. I was going to say that might be an interesting thing to dig into. Since, like you were saying, there's sort of five different arcs, we wanted to base each of those arcs around a different hub. And um, designing the hub worlds, like you said, they're very dense. We wanted them to have a lot of interesting locations, a lot of interesting characters. And uh, we, I ended up tapping Carl Rubeltowski, who's on the Earth Dawn team, and I worked with on Legends of Barsave. He did a lot of work on the Jairus hub uh, for uh, the uh, Riotous Bloom arc. And then uh, Long Live the King and Pirates and Thieves was done by a freelancer by the name of Nick Lowe, who puts out tons of good work and can always meet a deadline, which is great. <laughs> uh, Josh is singing praises on that one. Sure. <laughs> deadlines yes. made, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I am bad at deadlines. That's okay. So since you were handed the reins, more or less, and there are some there are some things in here that haven't been fleshed out before, really. Uh, I think a lot of Jairus's history, workings in kind of a mini map and free water and so forth in Daichi. What did it feel like just to go, you know, world build a little bit on your own? Were you reined in a whole lot or is one of those, oh, no, no, more of that or less of this <laughs> or, you know, how many fingers were in this pot? It, it felt... Very cool. I kind of felt like I was given the keys to the kingdom, uh, though after the hubs were written, I went and did some editing, did some collaborating, uh, tried to polish it up a little. And then we had a few other fingers in the pie, like Josh helped with more editing to make sure everything 
fit the lore and nothing was contradictory. And uh, Andy did some editing, Morgan, pretty much everyone on the team had their fingers in it at one point or another. But uh, a lot of the, 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 the foundations, I would say, were put there by um, the freelancers and myself, and they're, they're mostly still intact. Fair enough. I was enjoying reading, uh, like I said, the new sections just on, like I said, Jairus is finally flushed out. Daichi and free water and all these other things, just, just adding little tidbits of, you know, we've only had like a paragraph or a couple of sentences before. Now we've got pages on pages on pages of the inner workings and the feel of a town and how it looks like and so forth. So if, if you're never going to run the plot, at least get the book <laughs> for this is at least, you know, setting description at the very, very least. Yeah, that was one of the one of the objectives when we were kind of in the early development stages of this was to not make it just an adventure supplement, but to also provide something that would be useful for people who handle their own plots or maybe just need a place to set them. And so giving shape to Jairus and a little bit of the conflict on the, the Carafad Landis border and setting it outside of Kratos so that we could kind of refer to some of the stuff from the third edition supplement about that, but still flesh out uh, a little area that could serve as useful. Like that was an intentional design choice so that it would be something useful to any GM, even one who wasn't necessarily going to be playing within the, the canon storylines. To that point, I have one of my questions I'm going to skip to is, so this does reference a lot of first and I believe third edition source books that are still out there that haven't been revised for fourth edition, obviously. Carafod, Prelude to War, you know, so we're continuing with most of that lore is still accurate. Is that a fair assumption to make? Yeah, I think that the uh, lore, the lore as it was set down in first edition is pretty accurate other than we tried to take it as accurate until we run into a reason why we think it shouldn't be, or a uh, we think this was probably just someone's opinion, and we should make sure that we flesh out the full size of the opinion. Especially something like Prelude to War, the main beats on that have pretty much happened, and if someone ran the, the adventure, it changed, but the main plot beats were assuming that all that occurred. So how many source books did you have to go back and reference? <laughs> uh, like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you're Although, interestingly, I was going to point out because I didn't actually realize this until Empty Thrones was released. Apparently, the, the Living Room Games second edition Bar Save at War has a big section where they sort of have a version of Jairus that they present. Oh, cool. And we had... It never even occurred to me, in part because of what I had talked about in an ancient episode about the the split that happened with the, the development in terms of the timeline and how fourth is kind of built off of third, which was chronologically in the setting before the living room game stuff. And so yeah. a, a lot of what they had done, you know, we never... I never thought to to refer to it, to go to that and see, well, are there any ideas here that are cool that we can mine or reference or things like that? So people who might have been kind of going along all the way along with the different editions might run into a kind of situation like you have with um, Parlength, for example, where there was yeah. a little like neighborhood of Parlength that was described in Missive Betrayal. And then when the 
Parlane's box set came out a couple of years later, they had to wedge this little thing into a corner of it <laughs> in order to kind of keep the consistency between them. <laughs> and you won't see oh, that. Uh, in, in, or how we had to kind of make sure that we paid attention to Terror in the Skies for the Trevar book, things like that. But we did not, it didn't even occur to me to, to go and look at that sort of thing because second edition had sort of been pushed off into its own area and not necessarily being mined for material. Not that it wasn't good or anything, but it was not because I was not really involved in any of the development. I will say that... I so don't it, know it as well. I, I will say that I referenced Barsave at War while I was writing it. Um, and while the, okay. the city now takes a very different shape than what it was in that book, I wanted to avoid outright saying that any of the plots that occurred there didn't occur there. I was trying to keep some degree of collaboration. Okay. So, yeah. Let's, let's, well, that's good to know. I mean, Living Room Games put out product. Not going to argue that they did not. It was Some of it was good. Some of it was not good. Doesn't matter. Everyone has their opinions on things. It was not an intentional snub, but, you know, we're <laughs> taking fourth edition into the path that we want to take fourth edition. And I'm saying we like I'm <laughs> on the team. I'm not on the team. Uh, <laughs> well, so, you, have, you have contributed some stuff, Dan. Two things uh, in the podcast. So it's okay, but I'm not in the regular development meetings. So just the people can know there's a clear delineation on where responsibilities uh, lie. So uh, big other eyes arcing question here. What was, what were the logistics like in making sure this could also work as a standalone series of arcs and one overall epic plot? I mean, who, who pulled out more hair? <laughs> On making sure that it all fit together right. Yeah, I, I worked really hard <laughs> to try to... I was trying to look at it like I felt Prelude of War was put together. I feel like Prelude of War was put together like it has a three-act structure. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. But it has more than three plots. It has a lot of things going on and going back and forth. So that's part of why I put together that timeline and then it got polished up and put in the book. Because I wanted to say, this is what kicks things off. This is how things are going in the middle. Here's kind of a big middle point. And then here's how things are going to get wrapped up and uh, something that feels very decisive at the end. So I knew what sort of thing I wanted to cover in each plot. But then I also knew that I had this big overarching beat that I wanted to hit for people doing the epic story. Gotcha. So what was the inspiration behind us? Aside from just Ool is dead, what other like sparks did you have of, ooh, that should happen next. This is the next domino to fall. This is the next domino to fall. What was the inspiration for some of those? The, the main starting point was, well, if Ool is dead, everybody wants to sit on the Malachite seat. So who are the most interesting people to try to do that? And how would they manage to gain that power? So a lot of it was, well, there's a Denaristas here that we've built. Uh, who would he poke to do what? And then in some cases, it was, well, let's make sure in the Iopos book, we talk about this Denarastas because we want to make sure that we do some stuff on the Serpent River and in Kratos. So that it doesn't seem to right. come out of nowhere. So it was kind of, uh, cool. you know, the tail wagging the dog in some places. <laughs> Fair. Uh, Josh, did you have any, have any input on any of those beats? Like, oh, make sure this happens because I just thought of it. Or make sure this happens because we want to tie that into something else coming up down the line. No, it was more that I think my direction and the kind of thing that I wanted to see out of this was that the Denarastis are known as being schemers and plotters and having long-term kind of 
lets you and him fight kind of things as demonstrated by the assassination uh, of Varulus and yeah. how that was intended to kind of pit Thrall and Thera against each other. And any time that the, that the Denerastis show up in other places, it always seems like they're working on some kind of long-term scheme. And I wanted the stories, I wanted the adventure arcs and so forth that were going on in this to kind of serve in a way, in addition to just being good adventures in their own right, good storylines, but also to perhaps serve as a template of sorts for the types of adventures that the dinner or campaign arcs that the Denerastis might be involved in to serve as kind of an example, like, okay, you may not like the specific details of what's going on in Daichi, right? But the idea that the Denerastis are doing this thing to pit this faction against this other one and to try and, and leverage that using that as examples, because the Iopos book was already pretty getting pretty big as it was. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity in that book to get into detail about how to run intrigue plots and okay, well let's give them examples of intrigue plots and how they can yeah. go different ways. So if, if given unlimited space and unlimited printing capability, how many novels do you think this would have actually turned into if you just added dialogue and characterization? <laughs> Because this reads like kind of a set of choose your own adventures or uh, I would more than a trilogy. I'm thinking like this would be five or six novels just strung together. Uh, like oh, basically one per Yeah, arc. I definitely feel that each framework could sort of be its own Legends of Barsave style fleshed out adventure, which puts it around the 40, 50 pages if you wanted to. And we have like five frameworks per arc. So you can do the math. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to do that math. <laughs> I'm just not going to do that math. Back to something kind of more fun. Do you have any favorite NPCs or magic items that you got to work in just to go, that one's my favorite? Because I've, I've written a couple things. Josh has written a, a bunch of things as well. You always have that one favorite that you're just kind of glom onto going, I hope that gets made. I hope that makes the cut. I hope that gets <laughs> printed. That's the thing I'm, I'm proudest of. I would say one of the overarching favorites was Barge, the ogre who's working the port at Daichi. So he's a fully fleshed out ogre character that actually gets to do some fun stuff in the plot. And we, I was very excited that his role kept getting larger and larger. Nice. Barge is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Barge is great. <laughs> I was waiting for that exact quote. Um, so it, so how how much overlap of the NPCs is from the Iopos book? So did that make it any easier to do? Just just that little section? There's very little overlap. Even the initial chapter, uh, public execution, that takes place in Iopos, I wanted to make sure that there was a lot mm -hmm. of value there. So it's a whole new district in Iopos that's part of a larger district. So it's Counselor Plaza inside the clans ward. And there's... Uh, just people who were not important enough really to be in the Iopos book, but are important enough to be a threat to a group of fifth circle players. So I would say that there's two or three characters in the Iopos book that are also in Empty Thrones. Okay. So enough standalone. Yeah, that was another thing that sort of ended up getting a little bit cut, um, is that there was some some stuff in Iopos that was in some early ideas for Empty Thrones that didn't really fit to the to the storyline there that now are off kind of doing their own thing. Of course, they have to do their own thing. Yeah, hooks for um, later. 
<laughs> yeah. Always dropping little, dropping little things around here. Like I said, this reads, I, I can't say densely enough, but there's enough information. Like I said, every paragraph, every three or four sentences where this one sentence describes another thing that's happening and a motivation behind it that could also spurn off just another little, like Josh said, another intrigue plot if you wanted to. So it's, it's, <clears throat> this is not just five overarching arcs and some other intrigue plots along the way. And like I said, five little alternates per chapter. There's more than that. If you really want to drill down and dig, dig deep. And so it, this looks like the trunk of a tree <laughs> where there's many branches and many branches and little, little leaves everywhere. Since this is written for characters of fifth circle and higher <clears throat> and a half a dozen or so, the amount of, character decisions that they get to weave through, which is maybe they're lining with this loyalty. Maybe they're lining with this loyalty. Depends upon how they want to run it. I think, and I would like either one or both of you to explain that this really does challenge, I think, in a way that I have not seen in a while, any characters or any player's stance on their allegiance to power or their alignment to the status quo or accepting a new regime. So I think characters just can't walk into this lightly and go, I get to hack stuff. I get to get points, whatever the case may be. This really makes a player analyze their character's motivations and make some really hard decisions on where their loyalties lie. Thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of opportunity. There's plenty of opportunity to, to hack and fight stuff too. Don't be worried about that. <laughs> No, I was but, just saying. Yeah, that, I remember, yes. especially especially in the early stages of things, Jairus especially was one that had a lot of multiple factions kind of working with and against each other at different points in the story and trying to make it open enough so that a player character group, regardless maybe of their background or allegiance or whatever – can find something to connect to as they kind of follow that storyline through and the shifting goals and alliances and, and things that go on there. And that was something I think that got intentionally added a little bit more as the Freewater and Daichi arcs got fleshed out a little bit more once we got the, the write-ups for those areas from, from Nick mm -hmm. and looking at, at, okay, these are the different factions. Let's not necessarily tie a player character group to only working with one faction let's look at the theme like for example one of the themes that's in play in long live the king the, the one set in Freewater, is this town is kind of ends up being the important place that it is because it happens to be near where these two other factions are colliding you've got you know, the Carafod and, and Zaras Eisthot and what she's got going on along with the other party whose name I don't recall off the top of my head, but like that they're kind of going at each other. And then you've got Darla and the, the Landis Lives organization coming in there and like just the plenty of opportunity. Although in that one, I think the, the bad guy faction, the, the, there's a clear bad guy faction uh, in that <laughs> one, but there's still a lot of opportunity for for groups to find their own reasons to be involved and having a lot of NPCs that can be important, that can be connections, can have players and their characters care about what goes on so that they get involved in these tumultuous Yeah, things. I'm really glad that you both see it that way because 
originally when the project was handed to me, it was just under the working title, Death of Wool, right? Figure it out. And then I was like, well, um, here are the different pieces. And then we started putting together what we had. And I realized we had a really strong theme of what happens when power transfers from one position to another. And that's why we ended up settling on the title, Empty Thrones. Because the death of Ul clearly frees up a throne, but it's, it's a lot about what do you do when this power vacuum is here? What's the responsible way to act? And I think the title Game of Thrones was was taken. Yes. Unfortunately, that one, I, I Googled it. There's a, there's a show or something. Something like that. Kind of popular maybe for a little bit. Not entirely sure. So what was your favorite region of the map to work on? Was it dealing just outside of Kratos? Was it free water? Was it, since you could kind of flesh that out, was it, were you confined by what was already going on in Carified? What was your most fun part to work on? And then I'll ask the converse. What was your least favorite part? To work on? <laughs> I don't think I felt confined uh, for any location. There was enough wiggle room that I felt like I could uh, use what was there as a solid base to make what I wanted to make. I think for me, Jairus was the most interesting. And that's because it touches the wastes. And the last big work that I did was for Elven Nations. I, I did the Western Kingdoms chapter primarily. And that also touches the wastes. So I got to sort of tie a few pieces, bits and pieces together there. Cool. So what was your least favorite? My least favorite, I guess, would be um, putting together the Carafod Landis stuff, because that one just, it shifted so much during the design process. Uh, like we talked mm -hmm. about earlier, just we wanted to avoid all this throw like politics things. So things had to change dramatically what the story beats were there. And I'm still very satisfied with what we ended up with, but it always felt bad going, well, I guess this pile of stuff is going to be not in the book. We're going to put this over here and maybe hopefully find a way to use it later. Understand. I do have a Sky Point and Vivane revised project in the future. In the works. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Well, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got Europa first. Don't, don't get all excited. I've mentioned no. that that's sort of also like on my mm -hmm. future plate, but. It is. A lot of the um, a lot of the Nedin stuff that got cut from Empty Thrones revolved around the ruins of Sky Point, and that's part of the reason why it didn't ended up not really working was because it wasn't really geographically connected that strongly to everything else that ended up going on with regards to to free water and the whole situation there, and it was just easier to set up different reasons for for groups to be down there and save the set, save the the Throlic stuff for later. Fair. How long, and both of you can speak to this, how long did this take from idea to come to fruition? Because as we've said, we've hinted, Josh has hinted at the Europa book and the new Skypoint and Vivane book. Those are going to be a ways out. So how long did this take from concept to execution? I heard about the project. <laughs> yeah. Over a year. <laughs> I heard about the project uh, last mm -hmm. Gen Con in August. Um, and that's when I really had to start working on it. So over a yeah, year. Yeah, but we had started some of the... Well, yeah, about a about a year because we we were shooting to have it be the the Gen Con release mm -hmm. for this year. And then and yeah. while well, <laughs> I mean, we we still we still kind of hit the target on that. Yeah. In in that sense, I mean, the the books are not physically ready for Gen Con. I think the recognition in <laughs> earlier this year when everything started to 
get canceled and whatnot that that we kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew that well there probably isn't going to be an in-person gen con this year and so it actually did give us a little bit of breathing room in terms of okay we don't need to rush to get it so that there are physical books at the convention let's get it so that we can do the kickstarter and have have that be sort of the 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 whatever but i have been teasing and alluding to this project for a while yes as anybody who has been (laughs) listening to this show is aware what we have listeners i'm kidding we have regular listeners uh so let's talk about something fun which is the uh word choices for the section titles there's song lyrics in there there's kids games (laughs) in there there's song titles in there um how fun are those to pick out (laughs) Was it just, I had this idea. I had this, I had this song lyric I wanted to work in. I mean, Duck, Duck, Goose is one of those. That's just <laughs> mm-hmm. a kid's game. So what was the, is, is it the, like the reverse process? I have this title I want to use, <laughs> make it, you know, a story behind it, or I have the story and I have to title it. Chicken egg. For egg, most chicken. of them, the framework started out as like a kind of nebulous sentence or a couple of sentences in a document somewhere. And then I would go back and I would name it based on those sentences. And then I would write it. And then I would say, well, is this stupid jokey name that I have actually going to (laughs) work? It did. I found a lot of them I was very familiar with. Uh, I think one of them. There is one place. TV show. I found one that was a couple of song titles. There is one place. The final uh, framework in public execution is a bunch of deep cut mystery science theater references. Nice. (laughs) I love those. <laughs> and I think uh, one's a song lyrics from The Who. You meet the new boss, same as the old mm-hmm. boss. So I I keyed it on some of those because, again, we're all geeks. We all get them. I had to, I had to point some I think it's always fun to have uh, that knowing nod. It is, it, it, especially if you, since you're – this is in a game. This is the framework of a game. And if you're referencing, like I said, kids' games, song lyrics, you know, if you can lace in the things that you like that are in there – all the better. I'm okay with that. And it does um, allow us to to add a little bit of of whimsy to the material, like stuff that is kind of in some ways kind of kind of dark and deals with difficult situations sometimes. Having Oh yeah. Anytime that you're writing, you you are and your your first audience is yourself and doing things that amuse and entertain you is a great way to keep engaged in a project. <laughs> and doing kind of silly little and pushing references like that. Well, in a lot of the um, the the opening chapter pull quotes in the players and game masters guides, mm-hmm. the the people the 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 people that are saying those quotes are often deep cut references for me, just amusing myself as the you know like where I pulled the name from <laughs> and whatnot. Oh no, absolutely fair. Like I said, to your point, you have to write for yourself first because if you like it, then hopefully other people will like it as well. If you don't like what you're writing. <laughs> no one else is going to like it a whole lot either. So are there any questions that I should have asked that you were waiting to go like, oh, I hope you asked that question because I'm ready to answer that. Or I want to talk about this. Anything we haven't talked about you really want to talk about? Because we haven't really given a whole lot away on plot. We've gone 47 <laughs> minutes now and really haven't covered any spoilers or anything close to a spoiler. Yeah, I think we've done pretty well. Of- and I think that's a good yeah. thing. I will say that I think the uh, game information chapter has a lot of really cool stuff in it. It has additional rules for how to run like large groups of NPCs, both on your side and against you. I was, I was just going to get there. In fact, I was going to go to the mechanics. The Boom, jumped ahead of you. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I found opponent groups rules. I'm like, oh, 
that's a new little wrinkle that Earthdawn's never had before is how to run opponent groups and how to treat them en masse. So I like that. Yeah. And most of that chapter was, of course, put together by our rules guru, Morgan Weeks. But we wanted to make sure there was a lot of really cool stuff in there for a GM to use, even if they weren't getting involved in this uh, particular adventure. We have the opponent rules. We tried to get in a lot of high circle threat type creatures, which always eats up a ton of page count and is hard to justify in books that aren't Mm -hmm. really designed for it. Any questions that we should have asked that I didn't ask or anything you want to highlight that we haven't talked about so far? I was just really happy to answer the question of what happened to, well, sort of answer the question <laughs> of, of what happened to Ardelia. Ooh. Okay. So she's in the, in, in here somewhere. Yes, she you is. might be able to find her. It's, it's, okay. I mean, if you read it, it, it actually spells, we, we actually went back and forth a little bit on whether to make that blatant or not. And I think, I think we made the right choice in, in making it obvious for those who wanted it because it, it is a tie back to earlier editions and kind of that ongoing storyline. While there is still much that is perhaps not known about the intervening time, we have in a <laughs> sense caught up with her and there are some hints as to the, the type of young woman that she has become in the, in the intervening years. So what, uh, let me ask the last question I can think of right now until I come up with another one. What does this book not have? Because I know it's got political intrigue. It's got orcs. It's got elves. It's got humans. It's got to scrang, <laughs> plenty. It's got a little bit of the horrors. It's got dragons, by the way. Small spoiler on that one, I guess. So what, what does it not have? <laughs> it doesn't have a GM to run it for you. There you go. <laughs> There, there is, it doesn't actually have dialogue to use, but yeah, other than that, what does it not have? As I think this, this literally should have something for everyone, player, game master. Yeah. Uh, budding novelist. I think that there is something in there that, that any GM can find a use for in their game, even if they're not necessarily going to be running the, the, the sort of primary plot line that runs through it. I think the information on the various locations, whether that's a little bit of a deeper dive into part of Iopos, information on Jerus or Daichi or Freewater, the stat blocks for the, the more advanced um, enemies that are in there uh, in various parts of the book, a bunch of NPCs and conflicts and ideas and, and whatnot that can be developed there. It, it's It's pretty clearly a more of a GM focused book than a, than a player focused book, just because of all the stuff that's in there would be of use to a game master who's going to be running things, but don't feel like because it is ostensibly a product that focuses on the storylines of what happens in the wake of Ool's death, that if you're running your own adventures, you can't make use out of stuff that's in there. Well, and I figure if you're playing a character who wants to be from one of those cities around this time frame or something you've called home, even just the world building and the setting description of what the town is like, what the attitude of the citizens are like and what the place looks like, that's all worthwhile if you want to, you know, just start writing your own character history on those things just to get a good feel for it. It never hurts to know. I mean, we all live in a city or a country or whatever, and we all know certain other aspects of those Things we've traveled to other parts of the country, so we can talk about them. This is nothing different. You can read about what's going on in all these towns just because. 
So it, all of it helps inform the player and all of it helps inform the game master, I think. So, uh, gentlemen, that kind of covers all the thing, things I can think of. Any final thoughts on how Empty Thrones turned out? I'm really happy with it. I think the 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 sort of one-two punch that we had of Iopos and Empty Thrones, people kind of suspected that we were working on something big because while I was keeping the details quiet, I was very clearly indicating that there was something big coming. And the general shape of what it was, people like were talking, you know, a year ago about I suspect that this super secret project is probably like a, a campaign sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that anybody really guessed exactly what we were going to do. And I'm really happy with not only how Iopos and Empty Thrones came out, because they were sort of developed one very closely with the other, but also just the timeline of the announce, like we release Iopos, we've got the announcement of Wool's death in Don's comic, and then we have the Empty Thrones campaign. It all just came together really, really well. And I'm just really, really proud of the work that Kyle and and everybody did to make it what it is. Absolutely. The strength of the products that we have been putting out is it, it is absolutely down to the dedication and effort of the entire team and the freelancers and all of that. Kyle, your turn to humble brag, man. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very proud with how the work came out. Uh, I definitely think uh, everyone collaborated on it and uh, really helped it along. So this book couldn't have been what it was without the whole of Earth Dawn team and the various freelancers who got involved. But I think it's a, a gorgeous book. It's got stunning art direction. It's uh, everything in it. I think works really well. And, um, I hope that everyone enjoys it as much as, uh, I enjoy putting it together. Yeah. I think we spent the last 55 odd minutes or so trying to get everyone to actually, if they don't already have the book, go get it as soon as it's available. Uh, and if you didn't back it, sorry, but you should have backed it. <laughs> the rest of us did. So Kyle, um, what, what's next for you? Uh, well, what's next for me is I'm probably going to be working more, uh, in an editing capacity with that, uh, freelancer who's so good at meeting his deadlines, Nick Lowe, and we're looking at uh, a different uh, (laughs) province uh, from uh, the Theron Empire book. Not sure how much I'm allowed to say or Andy might get mad. (laughs) (laughs) She has a week to get a hold of me. We won't we won't say any more than that right now. No, no. So re-exploring another another part of the map that hasn't been explored That's in a right. while. We Something from that. the Theron Empire book. So, yes, very nice. Uh, Josh, Kyle, thank you very much uh, for letting me ask you all kinds of weird off-the-wall questions, uh, both fun and deep. <laughs> I hope it was enough for the listeners. If they have any questions for us again, you can email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Final thoughts, either one of you. Otherwise, we're done. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks Pleasure for to being meet here, you. Kyle. Look forward to Thank more you. of your work. Until then, folks, until next time, it is time for you to go um, vacate your own throne and make your legend. Good night, everybody. Woohoo!